Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. and I'd like to welcome everyone that's here in the gathering and then those who are joining us on live stream. Uh, we, uh, we consider it a, a privilege to gather together, especially after the last year and, and whatnot that we've experienced. And uh, this, this past week, uh, the CDC has made an announcement that if you are vaccinated, you no longer have to wear masks in public places, in, uh, inside or outside. Well, in light of that, we have decided that this is our last Sunday of wearing masks. So starting next Sunday, our gathering will be without masks. So you can wear a mask if you feel more comfortable. You can sit anywhere you would like. You will not be shamed, I promise. There is a lot of grace for all of us, and uh, we will share that grace. But if you feel free to take your mask off or not wear one at all, starting next Sunday, we will be mask-free. So we're super excited about that. We get to see your faces, and we get to hear your voices fully together. So that would be really great. So let me ask you guys, uh, in, in light of just how the Lord has been working in, in our family, uh, our church family, in our lives, let me ask you guys to stand with me. And I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing together as a family. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now knowing that uh, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that with our heads. Help us to, to know it with our hearts. Help us to know with certainty, with, in, 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 with such certainty that it affects the way that we make decisions, affects the way that we live. God, let us know that you are in control and that you are, you are good. Help us to, to know you better this morning. And God, as, as we gather together, I pray that your spirit would speak to us clearly this morning. We know you can and we know you do. But I pray that we hear and that we listen. We are your children, your servants, and we know that you, you take pleasure in us. You treasure us. And so this morning, help us to remember that. Help us to sing loudly, to make a joyful noise to the Lord, and to proclaim your your name above everyone else. We love you and we thank you for loving us first. We pray all this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would look at the screens with me, I'd like us to read this together. It is Psalm 47, 1 through 2. Clap your hands, all peoples. I'll give you a moment. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Amen, amen, For the amen. Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Yeah! If you would bow your head with me as we come into a time of prayer of confession. Almighty and most merciful God, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is nothing good in us. But, oh Lord, we know that's not the end of the story. We know that you died for us in our sins. So, God, we come before you and we ask that you have mercy upon us. Spare those, O oh God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Grant that we may forever live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his name. Amen. Good morning. Where are all the elementary kids? Raise your hand. Oh, I see a few. Good. I know we're missing a few friends today. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Um, who's ready for school to be out and for summer? Grayson is. India. There's some other people who are. Yeah, I understand. We're getting close. Um, this morning, we're going to read a story called The Good Shepherd. Um, and I, this is a really, really good story. So turn your listening ears on and listen up and see what, what God wants us to learn today. <clears throat> okay, so it's about a man named David, and David was a shepherd. But when God looked at him, he actually saw a king. Sure enough, when David grew up, that's just what he became. <clears throat> and David was a great king. He had a heart like God's heart, full of love. Now, that didn't mean he was perfect because he did some terrible things. He even murdered a man. No, David made a big mess of his life, but God can take even the biggest mess and make it work in his plan. I need a new heart, Lord, David prayed, because mine is full of sin. Make me clean inside. And God heard David's prayer. He forgave David, and he made David a promise. <clears throat> he said, I will make you great, David. And one day a king will be born into your family, and he will heal the whole world. Did you know that David was a songwriter too? In fact, his songs were so good, they might have been in the top 40 charts if they'd been invented then. That's where all the good, really good songs stay. David's songs are like prayers. They are called psalms, and this one is called the, psalm, the Song of the Shepherd. It's probably number one on the psalm charts, and it goes like this. God is my shepherd, and I am his little lamb. He feeds me. He guides me. He looks after me. I have everything I need. Inside, my heart is very quiet as quiet as lying still in soft green grass in a meadow by a little stream. Even when I walk through the dark, scary, lonely places, I won't be afraid because my shepherd knows where I am. He is here with me. He keeps me safe. He rescues me. And he makes me strong and brave. He is getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me, everything I ever dreamed of. He fills my heart so full of happiness, I can't hold it all inside. Wherever I go, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love will go to. God gave David that song to sing to his people so they could know that he loved them and would always look after them like a shepherd loves his sheep. And one day, God was going to do something that would inspire thousands upon thousands of new songs. God was going to show his people once and for all just how much he loved them. Another shepherd was coming, an even greater shepherd. He would be called the Good Shepherd, and this shepherd was going to lead all of God's lambs back to the place where they had always belonged, close to God's heart. Who knows who that shepherd was going to be? What, who do you think, Grayson? 
Jesus, that's right. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, let's pray to God, our, our great shepherd, the one who loves us and takes care of us now. Dear Father, you are a good God, and you, um, you love us so much more than we can even imagine. And God, we are so thankful that you are always with us, um, that you have good things for us. You give us good gifts. And God, even when we go through really hard things, we can find peace and we can find rest and joy because you're with us and you hold all things together and your promise to be with us is so strong and it helps us to feel safe when otherwise we might not. And so God, I thank you that you are present with us, that we can count on you, that you're faithful Help us to remember that this week and in the days ahead when we have good days and when we have bad days too. God, thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you take such great care of us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. All right. Good morning, Mercy Hill. All right. You are awake this morning. Great. Grab a Bible. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. You're going to need to keep your Bibles open. Today we begin a new sermon series. We just finished the Gospel of John this last uh, two weeks ago. We were in the Gospel of John for almost a year. And um, today we begin a new sermon series entitled, Follow Me, Learning How to Be with Jesus. And as we look at this series, typically we teach through books of the Bible. And we've decided after studying the Gospel of John that we would take some time to look at the early church, to look at those who walked with Jesus day by day, to look at um, how the early church lived in order that we might learn how to be with Jesus. If, if you look at the artwork, you'll notice that oftentimes when we think about uh, this idea of follow me or, or being with Jesus, Oftentimes there's the aspect of trying to discern or listen to the Spirit in our lives. And so you would think of like uh, an open road or a path in front of you. Which path should I take? But too often when we, when we think of following Jesus or listening to the Spirit, we just kind of relegate that to almost like the Holy Spirit's just a GPS and there's a whole lot more to being in relationship with God, to being with Jesus than just taking orders. And so instead of, of, of putting a, a GPS or something like that up, instead um, we uh, chose to go with a kid on a bike because there's something about learning how to ride a bike that is both, it's thrilling, right? Because Wind in your hair, this freedom, you're able to pedal really fast. But if you're learning how to do that, it's also what? It's scary, that's right. And so, as we learn how to be with Jesus, what you're going to experience in this series is that it's, it's thrilling, but it's also going to be some things that are a little bit scary. And so, we're going to do those together. Here's the deal. My experience of being with Jesus, for most people, in what I like to call the former religious South. And so, we're not really a religious South anymore. It, we used to say that like these states, Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, used to be what they called the buckle of the Bible belt. I don't think there is a Bible belt anymore. Um, I know on my street, the majority, almost all of my neighbors are not church attenders. I don't know what your street is like. But 
here's the deal. In the former religious South, uh, many church attenders are fairly familiar with the Bible. So if you know people, you yourself maybe, but if, you're a ch- if you've grown up attending church, you're, you're probably fairly familiar with the Bible. Um, they've been around it on and off growing up, and they have some general knowledge of the stories in the Bible, maybe even how the Bible is laid out. How the books are arranged and some of those types of things. Maybe you know some of the major characters that are in the Bible. Maybe you even know some details and some theological ideas. Maybe you know about substitutionary atonement or election and predestination. Maybe those are things that you like to argue. But my experience with most people is if you ask them a practical question. Like when was the last time that you heard the Holy Spirit speak to you and you knew it was You knew it was God. Most people will look at you like you just asked them for the nuclear launch codes. They're like, do I even have access to that? Most of us have no idea how to really be with Jesus. And so we're going to talk about some subjects. It'll be familiar. Some of them will even seem basic at times. But I'm going to challenge you to practice them throughout the week. And move from knowledge of Jesus to experience with Jesus. From knowing the truths of Jesus and knowing about Him to actually being with Him. Today's sermon comes from uh, the passage of Scripture that, that is going to be the theme for this sermon series. It's Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. So follow along as, as we read together. Mark 3 verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We're going to look at a really simple outline today. And uh, if you don't know how to study the scriptures or if you've never, um, if you struggle with, with knowing how to apply the scriptures to you, this is something that you could use in your own life. The outline is this. What do the scriptures say? Secondly, why don't we do it? I think I've got it on the screen for you. This should be an outline. What do the scriptures say? Why don't we do it? What did Jesus do? How does that make all the difference? Almost every passage of scripture that you look at, what do the scriptures clearly say? Almost every time. Why don't we do it? What did Jesus do? How did that make all the difference? So the context for today is what do the scriptures say? And the scriptures say that he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Now how many of you have climbed a mountain before? I've climbed a mountain. Yeah. Okay. So you know, I I climbed Pikes Peak when I was a teenager. And what I realized was as an 18-year-old who was in pretty decent shape, Man, this is no joke. Like climbing a mountain is hard work. And so Jesus takes his disciples and he climbs a mountain. He goes to an isolated place in order to be with them to share this intimate, important message of what would be his vision for their lives. And not just his vision for their lives, but actually his vision for our lives. You see it in the way in which he calls them. Notice that Jesus' ministry, uh, it's a ministry of discipleship that's unlike his previous rabbis or teachers. Uh, Typically, students would put in an application, kind of like you're joining, you're you're applying for college. Let me see if I get accepted. That's what what, uh, students would typically do of a rabbi or a teacher. 
They would say, I'm applying to be one of your Tal- uh, Talmudim. And they would look to the rabbi and the rabbi would let them know. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went and chose his own disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it's because God chose you. He desired you. Not because of your goodness or your work ethic or your kindness, but because of his great love for you. God chose each of us when we were still in our sin, when we were weak, when we were unable to bring anything meaningful to the relationship. Uh, John 15, 16 says, Jesus said to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's because God shows you. God loves you. He desires to see you become like him in order that you will be changed and bear much fruit. And that happens as we learn how to be with Jesus. How to be with Jesus. Luke 6.40 says this. If you know it, say it out loud. A disciple... Caleb, Cole, Ellis, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Three guys in my discipleship group were memorizing Luke 640. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus' vision for our lives is that we would be with him to the point that we are like him. Many American churchgoers claim they know how to be with Jesus. But the Bible tells story after story of people who were with Jesus and their lives were so dramatically changed that they bore great fruit. It's what the Bible describes as, as their lives being lived out in such a way that they were dramatically changed that they affected all the people who were around them. In fact, they weren't even called Christians. That was a derogatory term that came later. The word Christian means little Christ. It was said in a negative way. They were called people of the way originally, meaning they had adopted the way of Jesus. Have you adopted the way of Jesus in your life? Are you happy with the fruit that is displayed as a res- from your life as a result of the way in which you follow Jesus? question for you. Are you happy with the fruit your life is bearing? Are you happy with the fruit that your life is bearing? We don't have a lot of time today to look at the idea of discipleship. We're going to be doing that all throughout this series. But throughout the series, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to follow him and make disciples. That's his main vision for our lives. That we would know him, be like him, and that we would make disciples. Would you be satisfied if all the Christians in the world had the same fruitfulness in making disciples that your life displays? That's a tough question, isn't it? Most Western Christians will never lead anyone to know Jesus. Statistics say that it's like very, very low, like 3 to 5 percent. Most Western Christians will never lead anyone to know Jesus. If they did, they would have almost no idea what to do with them other than drag them to a church service on a Sunday morning. So, in this series, I want to fix this. Okay? 
I want to fix this because Jesus gives us a different way to live. The scriptures say he appointed 12 so that we might be with him. And that word appointed is the same word, the Septuagint, the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. The same word for appointed in the New Testament is used for created. In essence, the writer is saying that Jesus created 12 disciples. Now, what's the significance of 12? 12 is not really a significant number in the Bible outside of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's as if Jesus is creating this potential church family. They didn't all work out. There were 11 that were good and they had to do church discipline on one. Actually, he did it on himself. But that's another story. Y'all know Judah's story. I can't see your mask. I can't tell if you're smiling or if you're just looking bewildered. But you'll figure that one out later. So anyhow, the, the, the story here is Jesus appointed 12 and and. It's as if Jesus is appointing this first 12 potential members of the church in order that they will display his glory. It's the same vision that was for Israel. That they would be a light to the world. His vision hasn't changed. That we would walk with Jesus and be like him. And then that we would be a light to the world. But there's a problem. The problem is that somehow over the years we've equated following Jesus with gaining knowledge about him and doing things for him. And the scriptures say that he appointed the twelve in order that first and foremost they would be with him. Do you have any idea in your life how to be with Jesus I'm not talking about having a quiet time so you can add gold stars to, you know, your, your Christian discipleship chart. That's not what I'm talking about. But do you know how to be with Jesus? Have you submitted all of your life under his lordship? I mean, does your devotional life just stoke the flame of abiding with him throughout the day? Do you see powerful answers to prayer? For requests that you are bringing to Jesus on a regular basis in your life. For far too many Christians, this is not their experience. In fact, the idea of being with Jesus for a lot of Christians may stir up some kind of dread. Or one more thing in their spiritual to-do list. Somehow, being with Jesus has become a burden for many Christians. So if we look at this outline, what do the scriptures say? Why don't we do it? Okay, so the scriptures say that Jesus called the twelve to be with him. It's pretty simple. Be with me. Why don't we do it? Why do we have such a hard time being with Jesus? Because the church in the West today, we have so many resources I mean, we have more resources than ever before. More Bibles, more apps, more commentaries. But also, we're so busy. And we have so many distractions, don't we? So many distractions in our lives. Even in churches like Mercy Hill, 
where we have stumbled on this idea of making disciples through the structure of missional community. So if you're not familiar with our church, we don't just meet on Sunday mornings and we've never made Sunday morning like the be-all, end-all of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like everything, we've never said that everything that has to do with Christianity is connected to a building. We've always said that the church is the people of God. We gather here on Sundays to celebrate what he's been doing seven days a week. And we're not going to limit Jesus to just an hour on Sunday and maybe an hour on Wednesday night. And so we form missional communities, which are small groups, where we would be together uh, with 10 to 15 people who are committed to be on mission for Jesus. So we're growing in the grace of Jesus. We're holding each other accountable in community. And then we're on mission declaring the gospel to those who are not yet followers of Jesus. But somehow, even in that mix, even in churches like Mercy Hill with missional communities, I fear that we have swung the pendulum. So we realized that mission isn't just overseas, right? Mission isn't just what you either go to Africa to do or what God sends some people who are like the most committed to him to go to Africa to do. Y'all tracking with me? You know what I'm talking about? In this scenario, uh, some of us have laughed many times and said, like, why does Africa get such a bad rap? Like, <laughs> if, if you're going to be a missionary, God, don't send me to Africa. It's like, Africa is actually a pretty cool place. One of my sons is from there, and I've been there several times. So, anyhow, we move from saying mission is this thing that if you're really committed, that God might send you overseas, or you might raise money and go do one, one week out of the year. And then we swung the pendulum and said, no, all of life is mission. But the problem is that for some of us, if we're living all of life as mission, meaning that we're just constantly getting involved in things. Because listen, folks, if you live in Memphis, Memphis is a ripe mission field. I mean, when I moved back here in 2011, it was the poorest metroplex in the U.S. outranking New Orleans and Detroit. The poor, it, in 2010, Memphis was the poorest metroplex in the United States. Memphis is ripe for mission. I can drop you in certain corners of Memphis that some of you don't know about because you make it a purpose not to go there. They don't even have names that you know of in terms of the neighborhood. You just call them things like South Memphis. And it's the place just after where you turned your car around and locked the doors and rolled the windows up. And I could drop you there. And if you didn't see English writing on any of the signs, you wouldn't know if you were in some portion of a, a poor African country in parts of Haiti or in Memphis. Memphis is ripe for mission. But the problem is this. The problem is that we can get so busy doing all these activities that if we don't know how to be with Jesus, then we're going to struggle to really see any kind of fruit. In our lives, we struggle to be with Jesus. Mike Breen said it this way, we're a group of people addicted to and obsessed with the work of the kingdom with little to no idea how to be with the king. 
addicted and obsessed with the work of the kingdom with little to no idea how to be with the king. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. But this has to change. Or else we'll be stressed out, burned out, demanding, spinning our wheels, but rarely producing fruit. And so what does Jesus do to solve this? What does Scripture say? Why don't we do it? What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus, he went up on a mountain. Why? Well, he wanted to find quiet and rest and silence and solitude. Jesus knew how to quiet his heart before his heavenly Father. In fact, John 5, 19 tells us that he had spent the first 30 years of his life only doing what the Father told him to do. Jesus was in perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus knew how to bring all his emotions to the Father. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. What emotion was not present in the Garden of Gethsemane? There was sadness there. Go read it. There was fear there. I'm not saying there was sinful fear. But there was fear there on Jesus' part. There are so many emotions. Jesus knew how to bring his emotions to the Father. Jesus knew how to bring important questions to the Father. Think about the night before he chose his 12 disciples. What did he do? He stayed up all night in prayer. When's the last time you stayed up all night in prayer? Jesus knew how to bring his heart, his emotions, his questions, even his love to the Father. John 15, 10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in his love. Jesus knew the love of the Father. His identity was secure. Jesus knew how to be with God. And this produced obedience and authority in his life. And it resulted in great fruit as he learned how to abide with his heavenly Father. And that made all the difference. Because here's the problem. If we don't learn how to be with Jesus, here's the danger. We'll fall into the trap of thinking that the answer for the church is to do things bigger and better. And that's what most of us think. Most of us think that the problem within the church is if we could just make it bigger and better. And folks, we've been, pro- we've been trying that in the West for the last 50 years. We've got, a, we've got a solid five decades of doing things bigger and better. And do you know what the results are? Pre-COVID, 85% of churches were plateaued or declining. 85% of churches. Thousands of churches a year that close their doors, sell their real estate, and get turned into apartments. Now, that's no big deal for Christians because we go, well, the building's not the church. The people are the church. But my question is, what does that declare to the community? The community who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't know that the church is the people, all they can tell is that the church is dying. In fact, it's just going away. And then if you look at, you know, things haven't gotten a lot better with COVID. It doesn't really take a rocket scientist to discover what happens when you remove community and accountability and corporate Bible study. But we can't blame all of this on 2020. Because there was something going on in the church before COVID that made being with Jesus difficult. And I think you've experienced it before. A lot of it is legalism 
and works righteousness and pride, thinking that we can do something great for God as if He needs us. And so oftentimes we try to fix all of this by resurrecting the missional church or, or trying to do great things for God. Someone examined Twitter for 30 days and here's what they discovered. They compared the number of conversations that were taking place regarding the term missional, which sounds like a good thing, right? And then they compared missional to discipleship. Did Jesus tell us to go and do great things for him? He told us to go and make disciples. Do you know that there were 100 to 150 times more the word missional happening on Twitter than the word discipleship? That's a 100 to 1 ratio. We're a group of people addicted to and obsessed with the work of the kingdom with little to no idea how to be with the king. Scott Jethini said it this way. I've got the quote for you on the screen. Many church leaders unknowingly replace the transcendent vitality of a life with God for the ego satisfaction they derive from a life for God. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not. But let me tell you how it works. You build a megachurch that looks like a mall. And I'm not against megachurches. I'm against the megachurch mentality. Because if you build a place where people show up and it looks like it's here to serve them. And their car doors open and everybody pops out and they go all go to their portions of the building and they never see each other again until it's time to go home again. Then what you're teaching them is that you really have no responsibility in discipling your own children. Just bring them here. We'll, we'll get, entertain them. We'll feed them. We'll make it fun. We'll bring the circus to Sunday morning. And then everyone wonders what happens when they go off to college and their professors tell them that this book that they've been reading is just a crutch. They throw a little bit of evidence their way to make them doubt it and they have almost no faith at all because their faith has been about an inch deep and a mile wide. That is Christianity in America. Fathers have no vision whatsoever for discipling their children, growing them up in the grace of Jesus. They're all concerned about sending them to college. They're worried about their grades. But they have no idea how to teach them the basic principles of being with Jesus because they don't walk with Jesus themselves. It's the problem that we face in America today. And if you've ever been here before... The problem is that the church will burn you out. The church, if you are really committed, the church will wear you out too. And some of y'all are like, I know, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. That's an old phrase from the 90s, guys. You don't, you don't need to worry about that. But the truth is, if you've experienced that, if you've been there, done that, got the t-shirt with the church, you probably burned it. Because the church will wear you out doing things, making you busy for God, all the while rarely teaching you how to be with God. I think back early on in the life of Mercy Hill. I'll never forget in the early days of our church having a young couple with young kids who I was very close to. 
And I watched them burn out. They were high-level leaders, at least I thought. They seemed to have great capacity and gifting for the kingdom. They were very good friends of mine. Very good friends. But by the time they left Mercy Hill, they said the word mission had become a dirty word to them. And, and I accept a lot of responsibility for pushing them, for burdening them with a heavy yoke in the early days of our church where there were just a few people around and it seemed as if there was so much that needed to be done for not shepherding them first to be with Jesus. Listen, if you're trying to do great things for God and you don't know how to be with Jesus, please stop. You won't do anything but burn yourself out. You won't bring glory to God. But if you will learn how to be with Jesus, you will not be able to help yourself. You will find that you will discover that mission is all around you. It's impossible not to be on mission as you learn to be with Jesus. And one of the primary ways that we do that is what the church over the years has called spiritual disciplines. Or what uh, I, I would prefer to call them, what David Mathis has described as means of grace. Means of grace. And so I'm kind of rounding third headed for home. I want you just to, to track with me here. This week, I want to challenge you to try something together with us. This is uh, an invitation to you that as you think about a quiet time or prayer or silence or solitude, all of these things that we've known as spiritual disciplines from the past, we're either going to think of those things as doing something for God and that's what most of us traditionally think of when it comes to the spiritual disciplines, whether it's silence, solitude, meditation. I mean, there's lots of disciplines. Fasting, um, reading our Bible, memorizing Scripture. I mean, there's endless amounts of ways in which we can come to know God. You're either going to think about that as doing something for God, or I want to ask you to think about that as, re as an opportunity or an invitation to receive something from God. To receive something from God. Alright, listen to these last three scriptures. I'm, I promise you I'm rounding third headed for home. Second uh, Corinthians 4.16. Just walk with me through three scriptures really quick. And listen to some nerdy Greek stuff, okay? I've got a point. I think it's important. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. If you look at that verb for being renewed, it is not active, but it is present passive indicative. In the Greek, it is present passive indicative. Meaning, it's not something we do, but it's something we receive. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is it being renewed? Are you, can you renew yourself by spending time studying the Scriptures and in prayer? Do you have the power to renew yourself? No. You receive God's grace. You receive the truths of His Scripture. And you are renewed. 
2 Timothy 2.1 You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened is present passive imperative. So it's a command, but it's not a command to achieve something, but it's a command to receive something. And all the spiritual disciplines, they are an invitation that we might receive from God what we are lacking. Last one, Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's present imperative. It's not a one-time event. It's ongoing. The writer is saying, be being filled with the Spirit. This is something we receive. Chuck Geschwin said it this way. All of the spiritual disciplines help us to make space to receive God's love and grace. To receive God's love and God's grace. Richard Loveless in uh, his great work, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, he gives this image of a ladder. And he says that every single day we begin positionally perfect, right with God. He says we aren't climbing a ladder. But we're on top of the ladder. We're on the top rung every day with nothing to achieve because Jesus has already achieved it. So the spiritual disciplines, they don't help us climb the ladder, but they help us simply to become aware of our position in Christ that we're already on the top rung. Isn't that good news? The truth in God Because our need is actually what propels us to be with Jesus. It's our need. Think about the times in your life where you've grown the most. Most likely the times that you were the neediest. Think about people who you know right now that you see God at work in their life. And I mean God is working in miraculous ways. They're usually people who are experiencing neediness. The thing we have the most of in our lives is neediness. And therefore, we have everything we need to experience life with Jesus because it's our need that draws us to Him. Our need. But the problem in our lives is that we hate being needy. Right? We hate being needy. So remember, I said we're going to try some things together. They're going to be scary and exhilarating all at the same time. And so here is my invitation to you this week. Practice being needy. The next seven days. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Grab a journal. If you don't have a journal, find a notebook. And wake up and write down your needs. That's all I'm asking. Just write down your needs. Your prayer requests, your anxieties, your worries. Write your needs in your journal and give them to God. Ask for His help, His guidance, His wisdom, His healing, His love. Just write them down. And next week, bring your journals back with you because we're going to share how God has met some of those needs. How He has met you in the midst of your neediness. So, we're going to begin practicing our neediness. And I want to invite you to do that now. We're going to take communion together. And uh, there are small baskets that are at the end of each of your rows. I'm going to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to take the basket and to take one of the cups. Invite the band to come up and join me. We're going to begin practicing our neediness now as we take the bread and the cup. We're reminded of our need for a Savior.
the greatest needs in our life bring us to Jesus. I don't know what your needs are today. Maybe you need to meet Jesus. Maybe you've never been forgiven of your sins and adopted. Maybe you've never experienced the joy that comes in knowing Him. Maybe you have fears and worries, hurts, unforgiveness. Maybe you're tired, weary. Maybe there's some things in your life that you realize that you've been controlling and that you need to give over to Him. That you need to give open hands to and that you need to surrender. Consider these things. Today we come to His table not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because any goodness of your own gives you a right to come, but because He loved you and He gave Himself for you. Come and meet the risen Christ, for we are you. Take the way for this on top. This is Jesus' body broken for us. We do this in remembrance of Him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me pray with me Father thank you for your word God thank you that you called us not because of our goodness, but God, you chose us because of Jesus' work. God, would you remind us that you don't need anything from us, but you desire to be with us. Father, I pray this week as we begin just to explore our needs and God, to open up our hearts to you and just to lay them bare. God, I pray that you would meet us. Know that you will. Tell us to knock and the door will be open. Tell us to seek you and that we'll find. God, we get so busy so often and so distracted. God, and show us how we can be with you even this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I once, I once heard uh, somebody say that there's 15 inches between heaven and hell. And that's the distance between your head to your heart. And in our hearts is where healing happens. In our hearts is where we, we learn on our needs and our neediness for Jesus. A lot of us uh, don't follow Jesus because we're doing too much or think too much or whatever or know too much. And so my prayer for, for all of us this morning is that we would go from our heads to our hearts and we would experience Jesus this week. So let's, let's receive our benediction this morning. And this is God speaking from Isaiah. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Amen. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on all of us. Mercy Hill, you guys are dismissed.